0: So this morning, um, starting at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still some, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered you are the Christ Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would like to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in his father's glory with the holy angels and he said to them i tell you the truth some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they will see the kingdom of god come with power
1: good morning everyone <clears throat> uh, yeah very warm welcome to you and uh... Uh, Lovely to have you if you're watching us on the live stream as well. Um, Great to have you with us today. Uh, We're going to pray and then we're going to have a look at uh, that uh, passage which Tara read uh, for us from Mark's Gospel. So would you join with me in prayer please. And if you're at home, uh, please join with us in prayer as well. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word and uh, we uh, thank you for the challenge that it is to us. Uh, We pray uh, today that um, by the the sword of your spirit, your your word, that you'd be uncovering uh, any um, uh, sinfulness in our hearts, uncovering uh, our selfishness and our desire to live for ourselves uh, rather than to live for Christ. Uh, And, Father, that you'd be changing us, that uh, as a result of hearing your word um, empowered by your spirit, that we would be people who live lives which are more wholly devoted and committed to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Where you lead, I will follow. Anywhere that you tell me to. Um, Benjamin, where does that song come from? Where you lead, I will follow. Anywhere... That you tell me to. He's thinking about it. Your favourite album from the nineteen seventies? <laughs> not Boney M. No, no, that's a, a song which was sung by Carol King, uh, in the Tapestry album. But I think we've just learnt something about uh, Benjamin's desire for, uh, or his uh, interest in Boney M. And uh, that he knows about Carol King singing Tapestry. I understand one of your favourite albums. He is an old soul. Benjamin from the 1970s. Where you lead, I will follow anywhere. (laughs) That's a big promise, isn't it? (laughs) That's a massive promise. I mean, uh, if you were going to make a promise like that, if you were going to promise to follow someone unconditionally, then uh, (laughs) you'd want to know a little bit about that person, wouldn't you? And I reckon I'd want to know what following them is going to be like and where it's going to lead to. Where you lead, I will follow anywhere that you tell me to. Now, what about um, following Jesus? Because he's the one who we profess to follow, isn't he? We profess to follow Jesus. And uh, we've seen as we've been looking through uh, Mark's Gospel that uh, Jesus didn't have much trouble attracting followers, did he? Uh, Because everywhere he went, uh, the crowds gathered around Jesus and when he moved from one place to another, the crowds followed him. In fact, uh, it sometimes became a little bit overwhelming that there were so many people that were following Jesus that Jesus had to sometimes leave them and uh, go and find a, a quiet place, a place that was remote, a place where he could get away from the people who were trying to follow him. Thousands of people, literally thousands of people, followed Jesus wherever he went. But what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? That's a different question, isn't it? And what should it mean for us to follow Jesus? And this, the first question I think that we'd have to answer if we're thinking about whether or not to follow Jesus is the question of, uh, well, we want to know a bit more about him. We want to know who is this Jesus. And, and in Mark's Gospel, that's been the, the question which has been threaded through uh, the, uh, the chapters as we've looked at them uh, so far because uh, Jesus, uh, he amazed people with his teaching, he astonished people with his healings He even frightened people, didn't he, (laughs) when he was walking on water. And so the burning question has been, who is he? I mean, we know that he's Jesus from Nazareth, but who is he really? Who is this man that he can heal the sick? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man that he can drive out demons? Who is he? And what will it mean to follow him? Now, if you'd like to open up your Bibles at... Uh, can I get you to open up your Bibles at Mark chapter 8? At Mark chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be starting off at verse 27, where we see that Jesus and his disciples have... They've been on the move, and uh, they've now come to uh, an area uh, which is in the very uh, northern part of the borders of ancient Israel... And it's the villages, he's travelling around, they're travelling around the villages that are centred around the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And as I say, this is in the far north of the ancient borders of Israel. And I say that it is in that area because Caesarea Philippi um, still exists today. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is a a thriving city. In fact I've known people who who were born there and grew up there in Caesarea Philippi. But it doesn't sound particularly Jewish does it? And there's a reason for that. The reason for that, the reason that it's got a name that doesn't sound particularly Jewish is because of the person who built it and who he named it in honour of. Um, Caesarea Philippi was a city uh, which was built by, uh, by Herod Philip um, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great and he ruled in that northern part and Herod Philip, he built this city called Caesarea, which he called Caesarea Philippi and he named it Caesarea firstly in honour of a particular person and who would that have been? If you, if you name a city Caesarea, who are you naming after? You're naming it after Caesar. You're naming it after the great emperor of the great king, of, of the great, greatest empire the world had ever known. So he named the city Caesarea and Philippi. Who's that named after? He's named after himself. He's named it after himself. He's named this city after the great Caesar, the Roman emperor, and also himself. Now, why might this be significant? Is this just sort of <clears throat> interesting historical information that I've given you? Well, maybe, but I think there, there is some significance in this because it is around, in the villages around this city, it is in the villages which are centred around Caesarea Philippi, this city which is honours, which is devoted to, which is to, to the most powerful ruler in the world, that Jesus poses the question to his disciples... Who do people say that I am? To which in verse 28 they answer, well some say that you're John the Baptist and others say that you're Elijah and still others that you're one of the prophets. Now um, that's the popular opinion about Jesus. But why would people think that way? I mean, why would people think that Jesus was the prophet Elijah who had lived centuries beforehand and who didn't die? He was taken up in a whirlwind. Uh, Why would they think that he was John the Baptist? I mean, John the Baptist had only recently been executed. Why would they think that he's John the Baptist come back to life? Well, this is really about the great Old Testament promise. Uh, the Old Testament promised that one day that God would send his king. That God would send his chosen king who would sit on the throne of David and would rule not just Israel but would in fact rule a kingdom which would extend around the around the globe. It would be a kingdom of the, uh, that would uh, of, he would rule this in the entire world and that before this king appeared that the prophet Elijah would return and he would uh, prepare the way for him to come. Now um, we've already seen in Mark's gospel that someone has come to prepare the way for Jesus who was that by the way that was John the Baptist. And uh, when we uh, look at the accounts of John the Baptist and what Jesus says about John the Baptist, we see that John the Baptist is actually the Elijah figure. He is the one who the prophet Malachi had said would come to prepare the way for the king. And so some say that Jesus is he's just one of the prophets. Um, others say, but when others say that he is Elijah, or that he is John the Baptist. What are they saying about Jesus? Well, they're saying that he is special. And as we saw last week, that they said that he does everything well. He is a, an astonishing person. But that's it. He's the one who prepares the way for the king. But he's not actually the king will be waiting for someone else to come after him if he is Elijah or if he is John the Baptist. That's public opinion. <clears throat> and so now Jesus <clears throat> turns to his disciples and he eyeballs them and he says, well, look, never mind public opinion. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And by the way... Um, how would you answer that question if someone were to ask you, to you, who do you say Jesus is? Would you be able to say that Jesus is my Lord? Would you be able to say that Jesus is my Saviour? What would people say? Well, the Apostle Peter, he, um, he doesn't get, always get things right, does he? I mean, uh, <clears throat> but this time he actually does. Because in verse 29, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter's reply is, you are the Christ. And what that means, uh, the word Christ means anointed one. And uh, the anointed one is another way of saying the king. So what uh, Peter is saying to Jesus is that you are the Christ. You are the long expected king. You are the one who will rule the world. You are the one who has come from God. And is Peter right? Absolutely. Peter is spot on. Now, if you were with us last week, or if you watched online last week, uh, you may recall that there was an incident where Jesus, there was a man who was blind, remember that? And uh, Jesus healed this blind man, and he, uh, he healed him once, and he asked the guy, so what do you see and the guy said, yeah, I, I can see people, but they're all, they look like trees. <laughs> um, they're all blurry. And so what did Jesus do after that? He, he had another go, didn't he? And after the second go, uh, the guy could see clearly. And it wasn't because Jesus, you know, <clears throat> is like the optometrist who doesn't get right the first time. Uh, no, there was a reason for this. And uh, the reason is that, that that man kind of is a symbol of, he kind of represents the spiritual sight of the disciples at that particular time who can see Jesus but he's, he's all bl- blurry, he's fuzzy. They don't understand him. They can see him but they don't understand him rightly. And that's true of Peter who having just gotten it so right about Jesus in the next breath gets it completely wrong about Jesus. Jesus. Uh, you see, the Jews had a wrong expectation of what God's king would be like because what they were expecting was that they were expecting a king who would be like King David uh, or like King Solomon. They were expecting that they would, God would send a king who would uh, uh, raise up an army and that army would, um, <clears throat> would, uh, uh, would, would push out the Romans, uh, would, would, um, would, would get them out of their country. So the name Caesarea Philippi would change to something Jewish. Uh, That's the kind of king that they were expecting. They were expecting a king who would establish a great earthly kingdom. Like in the days of King Solomon, but only better. And so to the disciples, with that mindset, what Jesus says next makes absolutely zero sense. Check it out. Have a look at verse 30. <clears throat> so they've just, Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, how does Jesus refer to himself? Well, he calls himself the son of man. And that's a term uh, that was not uncommon uh, in, in in those days, but it has a specific reference when it comes to speaking about the Christ, the Lord's king. Uh, because uh, in the Old Testament book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 there is a there's a prophecy it's a, it's a vision uh, about God's coming king. And, and in this vision it describes uh, some who is one who is said to be like a son of man, who ascends to heaven, and who enters into God's presence and is then given by God the Father, the Ancient of Days, he is given um, everlasting authority, power and glory over the entire world forever. He's made king. And so, son of man... Christ, um, it is just as Peter said Jesus is God's king but instead of defeating the Romans this king would be rejected he would be rejected comprehensively by the religious leaders of Israel the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law the whole lot would reject him and he would suffer and he would die. Which is not what they're expecting. I mean, what sort of king suffers and dies? Uh, they, they expected a king who would win the battle, not a king who would die in the battle. And so here's Peter. Uh, Peter, he's the disciple who always says the, uh, says the things that the other disciples think would be too dumb to say but they're all thinking it. This is Peter. And, and in verse 32, he, he kind of, he takes Jesus off to the side for a private chat about this. And, you know, to, um, <clears throat> to give Jesus the lay of the land and to, to just let him know that he's, that he's got it wrong. <laughs> There's no way that those things are going to happen. Now I, I I don't know about you, but I find it hard not to sympathise with Peter. Now, do you feel the same way? Because it's his wrong expectation. Uh, it's perhaps out of love for Jesus as well, and yet it rebu- it earns for Peter a rebuke more stinging, more stinging than any rebuke that Jesus ever dished out to anybody, including the Pharisees. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but of men. Jesus calls the Apostle Peter Satan. Satan. Why why so strong? Well, uh, in verse 31, if you care to check it out again, Jesus didn't say that the Son of Man might suffer. He said he must suffer. That is, it is necessary for him to suffer and to die. It's not an option, it is necessary. And part of the suffering of Jesus would be that he knew his future. He knew his future. He knew that on the cross that he would be cut off from God the Father with whom he had had fellowship, perfect fellowship for all of eternity. He knew that he would be cut off from God the Father He knew that that would be because that he would be bearing on the cross the guilt and the judgment for the sins of the whole world. It's no wonder that before then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in spiritual agony and anguish, that he sweated drops of blood. Or at the beginning of his ministry, remember that Satan tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. Remember that? Tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan offered Jesus the whole world. Took him up to the highest place and said, look over all of this. This could be all yours if you'll only sell your soul. Remember Jesus' reply to, to him? Away from me, Satan. In Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus often told people to stay quiet about him. Have you noticed that? I mean, uh, when um, when he uh, healed people, when he healed people of their blindness and their and their sicknesses, he instructed them, "Don't don't tell anyone about this." When he raised um, Uh, The the little girl from from the dead. He didn't want anyone to be told about it. And when an evil spirit's identified him as the Christ, he commanded them to stay quiet. Um, It's a bit firmer than that in the original. It's more like shut up. And here in verse 30, when Peter said that Jesus is the Christ, what did Jesus do? He warned the disciples not to tell anyone about him. Now, why is this? Why would he not want people to know? Well, um, this in Mark's Gospel is referred to as the Messianic secret. And perhaps it's because of the journey that he is taking to the cross. Perhaps it's because he doesn't want people to be rallying around him and, uh, and, and attempting to make him uh, king, to make him a worldly king. Because that would detract him from his journey to the cross. But it may also tempt him. It may also tempt him away from the cross. Peter is being used by Satan to tempt Jesus to worldly glory Instead of the necessary suffering of the cross, get behind me, Satan. Almost the same as what he said to Satan in the wilderness. And so the disciples now know that Jesus is the Christ. And what would being the Christ involve? It would involve suffering, it would involve rejection. It would involve death and it would also involve being raised from the dead. Where you lead, do I really want to follow you? I mean, resurrection? Yep, sure, absolutely, fantastic. But suffering? Rejection? Maybe even death? You know there are some preachers, and you may have heard some of them, who, who, who teach and who preach that uh, following Jesus means that all of your troubles are going to be over. Um, that um, that following Jesus, that's the key to becoming successful and comfortable and and well off. Uh, there's one a very very popular preacher that I read, and he said this, and I quote: He said, "I believe." God wants the church to have the kind of wealth the world experiences. <laughs> really. And in, it fits well with our culture, doesn't it? Because in our culture, the temptation is for Christians to think that we can, we can follow Jesus, yes, but with still so much of life being about me, about my needs, about my desires, about my preferences, about my privileges, about my will, about my whatever. And yet in verse 34, what does Jesus say? Have a look at it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's not very attractive, is it? (laughs) It's not, you know, you're not going to read that in How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, he's he's not talking about wearing a cross around your neck, by the way. No, he's talking about giving up your life. I don't think a cross necessarily captures it for us, does it? Because we're kind of sanitised that, you know. People wear crosses as ornaments and stick them up in, the, you know, places in their houses, etc., but across it's like it, is, it was an instrument of brutal death. That's what it was. He's not talking about something pleasurable or comfortable or convenient. He's talking about giving up your life. Just as he did for us. He goes on in verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. I mean, what does he mean? That seems like a paradox, isn't it? I mean, if you save your life, you, you keep your life. If you lose your life, you lose your life. But Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you will save it. What does he mean by that? Well, I've had friends, and I know some of you... Um, have as well. I've had friends who have uh, professed Christ and have been uh, active in Christian ministry and friends who I have uh, enjoyed uh, Christian fellowship with them but who over time have been seduced by the, the evil one and they've been seduced into thinking that life actually is uh, more about this world and and its uh, its pleasures. And When I look at them now, they might look like they're doing really well in life, you know, with their uh, successful careers and with their relationships and with their big fancy houses and so on. Uh, They look like they are living the good life and yet they have put down their cross. They have stopped following Jesus and have actually lost their lives because living without Christ is not living the good life because it's not living for the very purpose for which you've been created it's not living for the very for the very for, for the thing which will actually see you recreated and living forever with God <clears throat> living without Christ is not living the good life at all not now and not into eternity, no matter how shiny it looks. <clears throat> There's a guy called Philip M. Philip M. is Chinese, uh, Singaporean, and he's a multi-billionaire. Him and his brother are worth about $11 billion. And uh, so that's pretty rich, isn't it? Um, a multi-billionaire. And it's interesting to hear his story because he had it all. He, he, you know, plenty of money, more money than he knows what to do with. Anything he wants to buy, he could buy it, and yet he became a Christian. And it's interesting to uh, to to uh, to listen to what he says because he now shares that how his life has actually now become meaningful, that has become far more meaningful when he got to know God through Christ. And he talks about how knowing God through Christ absolutely beats all of the money and all of the material possessions hands down. It's interesting to to listen to a guy who's had it all, like the author of Ecclesiastes, who says, I was ruler over the whole of Israel. I had I had orchards, I had palaces, I had... Slaves, I had this, I had that, and it was all it was all like chasing after the wind. You just can't grab it. it, doesn't bring satisfaction. Knowing God through Christ brings satisfaction. And yet there's so many there are people, Christians, who want to trade that for the things of the world. And sometimes <clears throat> I want to think about it this way. Um, 10,000 years into eternity, what is going to mean more to you? Uh, How many possessions you had in this life or where you are spending your eternity? What will mean more to you? What matters most? I, I think also that sometimes carrying our cross... Uh, will mean identifying ourselves with Jesus uh, when the temptation is for us to distance ourselves from Jesus. Uh, Peter actually came to know what that was about, didn't he, uh, when before, on, when Jesus was on trial, and Peter says, "I don't know the man. Uh, not me. No, I'm not one of his. He's, he, I'm not one of his group. No." And for us, I guess it's when. Uh, you're with non-Christian friends, um, perhaps in the workplace or in the neighbourhood or in family and so on, uh, when a a topic comes up about something which is somehow related to the gospel, it might be um, why the world is the way it is, so issues of sin and the future, could be judgement, or something that's related to the teaching of Jesus, purity, um, marriage and so on, And it comes up in conversation and you know that uh, you've got a choice, that you can distance yourself from Jesus and what he teaches and stay friends with the world, avoid trouble, or you can stand with Jesus and say something and perhaps be rejected. Have you been in that situation? And I know that... um, there's, there'll be times when uh, you and I, it's true for me as well, when, when we've stayed quiet about Jesus and then later on we've regretted that. You know what that's like? And you think, I really should have said something. I really should have said something. But I was just afraid that they might think poorly of me. Well, um, two things. <clears throat> Number one. Don't forget that God forgives. And number two, make sure you don't do it next time. (laughs) Repent. We have to repent of that. But if someone claims to follow Jesus but they go through their life never willing to stand with him, never willing to suffer for him, never willing to give of themselves, then there is a clear warning in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The day of judgment. Now, remember um, where this conversation took place, where it all happened. It was uh, as Jesus and his disciples were around the city of Caesarea Philippi, um, the city which honoured the greatest emperor that the world had known. And some of them who were present listening to Jesus uh, say these things would actually end up dying at the hands of the Romans Um, because they preached the gospel of the true king. They preached the gospel of King Jesus. Peter was one of them. Now, they didn't know that at the time, but for them, Jesus made a stunning promise in chapter 9, verse 1, that before they tasted that death, that they would get a taste of God's kingdom in its power. When, as we'll see next week, Moses and Elijah miraculously appeared with Jesus in stunning, dazzling, heavenly glory. Where Jesus leads, will you follow? Anywhere that he tells you to. Friends, he leads us to life. He leads us to true life. He leads us to eternal life. But the journey is by way of the cross. For him and for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that that though he knew that he would suffer so profoundly on the cross, that he nevertheless uh, set his sights towards Jerusalem, that he took that journey, knowing that through his death on the cross that our sins would be paid for and your kingdom would be established. Father, we pray that we would have that vision of the heavenly exalted Lord Jesus uh, as we too go through this life, that we would not be detracted, that we would not falter, that that we would follow him no matter where that takes us, knowing that he has gone there before us and knowing of our eternal home in your eternal glory. And we pray that through that, as as people see Christians actually prepared to suffer for our faith, that others would be drawn to Jesus as well. And we pray this in his name. Amen.